Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. All right, I'm going to invite Mike Tamborello up here. Mike's going to read from the Gospel of John. Whenever we read from the Gospels, we stand as we're able. It's a way of recognizing the words of a king uh, coming into our midst. And so let's hear the Gospel of the Lord from John 3. The good news from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, how is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. It's the same with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, How are these things possible? Jesus answered, You are a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Thank you, Mike. You may be seated. I was reading a commentary on those uh, verses earlier this week. It's just a funny passage because, A, it's a long passage, and then, B, it's got some really familiar words in it, and then it's got stuff in it that's like, what? <laughs> you know? And so the, the commentary was saying that this is the gospel at its best because it's almost incomprehensible. Uh, and I thought, what a way to turn that, you know, that uh, sometimes we encounter things that feel, particularly with Jesus' words, are like, okay, I'm tracking with you, I'm tracking with you, I'm tracking, wait, what? You know, like Moses ascended, descended, like, and this is uh, a great picture of what we're entering into today is that sometimes there is a confounding nature 
to hearing from Christ. And so uh, that's what we'll dig into today. We remain in Act 4 of this big story that we've been walking through this entire year since August. We've been walking through these five acts of this big story, and uh, pretty soon we will start heading toward the home stretch of that. But we sit in Act 4, where as we are here in Lent, we look ahead to Holy Week, to Easter, where the rising king will uh, counter and overcome all that has fallen in the sin and self of Act 2. And uh, so that's where we are in this story, and we'll keep walking through it. God has come to us in the person of Jesus, and then we uniquely encounter Jesus in Lent. Uh, The last time I spoke, a couple weeks back, we, we sat with the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus being transfigured. And it's an important story that I want to start with today as we look into this passage of Nicodemus. I want to go back to the Mount of Transfiguration because there's a few important things that happen there. It is a pivotal moment in the story. First of all, because it is a threshold space between several seasons in the church calendar. We we come to the Transfiguration story out of Epiphany, and and there we find at at the Mount of Transfiguration this revelation of Jesus. So there's some Epiphany stuff happening here. But there's also some Lent stuff. There's a foreshadowing of what will come on Good Friday. And then it's this middle space where we are left on the mountain to do what the voice from heaven tells the followers of Jesus to do. Listen to him. Listen to him. Uh, To create space to sit with the actual life and teaching of Jesus. And it may seem strange, but one of my beliefs is that we don't often do that in American Christianity. We make a lot of space to talk about the birth of Jesus, the implications of the incarnation. God has come to us, and then that's right and good to do that, of course. And then we make a lot of space for the death and resurrection of Jesus, the implications of the cross and the resurrection. But now we find ourselves with these few short weeks of Lent sitting in between those big events, and we're left alone on the mountaintop with the living person of Jesus, his actual life what he said, how he said it, what he did, and not just how Jesus was born to reach us or how Jesus died to save us or how Jesus rose to raise us, but how Jesus lived. And one of my convictions, and I'm gonna say this twice because I think it's worth repeating, that Jesus' life is a form of salvation as much as his death is. It is a form of revelation as much as the incarnation is. The way Jesus lived is in its own right a form of salvation and revelation because by following the life of Jesus, we are, we are given a new way to be a human, a new way to exist in the world, a new way to be, a new way of walking, a new value system. Jesus was not just this imaginary person we talk about. He was a, a real human, yes, fully God, but, but also fully human, and therefore he had opinions, and he had values, and he had ideas, And he had words to say and ways to say them. And so we are saved by the life of Jesus just as we are saved by the death of Jesus as we learn from him, mimic him, embody the way that he chose to go about life. And this is crucial for our formation because I think we tend, uh, because it's a little easier to do it this way, we tend to make it that Jesus did important things for us right? That Jesus came to us, he died for us, he rescued us. All of this is true, of course, but one can claim every single one of those things and have nothing in their life actually change. I can believe that Jesus came and that he died and that he rose, but I've simply assented at that point to religious ideas, 
And we have many in our day thinking that that's all that there is to the Christian life, is, is a belief system, some notions that I, that I take by faith. And perhaps we too are tempted at times to say yes to the birth of Jesus and yes to the death of Jesus, but say, uh, nah, I don't think so, to the actual words and ways of Jesus. And so Lent invites us in to discipleship of this human being who showed us how God is in the world. This is what Peter is encountered with on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He's, he's got this thing that he's like, eh, I don't know. I don't know about all that. And this is what Nicodemus runs into when he encounters Jesus. He hears these words and he goes, wait, this, what? I don't know if I can get my head wrapped around all of that. And so Jesus came to show us how to live And he is a savior, yes, and he is also, though, a teacher and a master and a king. He is truth and life, yes, but he is also way. And so when we stand here and we sing, I believe you are the way, the truth, the life, we are confessing not only Jesus as truth and life, but the way of Jesus, not just a religion we believe in, but a person we have committed to follow, his actual way of being in the world. And it, it, that rescues us then. It's critical because it rescues us from the temptation to stamp Jesus on top of an otherwise unchanged life. <laughs> That's my favorite. I love it. All right, and then finally, transfiguration is this pivotal moment because it comes right in the center of the Gospels. If you look at the Gospels narratively, Something changes at the transfiguration. It is a point of no return. If you follow Jesus down from the mountain, you follow him to a cross. And this is why Peter does not want to go down. Jerusalem waits on the other side. It's a lot more convenient to stay in the spiritual epiphany, the revelation, the mountaintop experience. But to keep on following Jesus, we have to follow him toward a cross. And so Peter doesn't want to go. And we don't want to go. And something begins to shift in the Gospels here. The pace in the writing picks up. The urgency increases. The conflict in the language heightens. This is the beginning of confrontation. And as we move toward Easter, what we're going to find that really finds its fulfillment in Palm Sunday, there is now a clashing that is beginning. There is a conflict that is beginning. There's a confrontation coming. Why? Because there are two ways of being in the world, my kingdom and God's kingdom, myself and God's self, my will and thy will, and they're starting to come into conflict with each other. They are not just in contrast with each other, they are in confrontation with each other. There is a heavily guarded self, the reign of me, my self-rule that is self-referenced and self-ish, and it cannot coexist with a world in which God is king. And so there's a confrontation that begins to happen, and God's rule is a threat to us in that way. It is both invitation and threat, and the self is heavily guarded territory, and this is why it's easier, why we so often find that we claim Jesus on top of our lives but don't actually change any citizenship, so to speak, right? Because I can just say yes to these ideas and keep on living in my own self-rule. But Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, change your way of being. And we, to pray your kingdom come, have to then implicitly be praying also, my kingdom go, right? That's the consequence of that. And so Nicodemus approaches Jesus in the night, and he comes to Jesus under the cover of dark. He does this perhaps not because, not only because he's a religious leader, he is likely the religious leader 
of the Jewish uh, community. And so when Jesus talks to him and says, how can you not know these things? You are a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? Uh, more likely, the Greek there is actually, you are the teacher of Israel. And when he shows up, he says, we know that you are a teacher. He's representing a whole group of people. So he has been sent to try to figure out what this Jesus is all about. In the chapter before, Jesus has just gone into the temple. In John's telling, he's turned over tables, he's driven out the money changers, all of these things. And so he's shaking things up. There's already this conflict beginning to happen between a nice religious life over here and a real and genuine repentance and worship over here. The conflict is beginning. So Nicodemus steps in to say, like, whoa, whoa, let's settle things down here a bit. And let's figure out how we already deeply established in a religious tradition, can take what you're saying over here, Jesus, and paste it on top of the life we've already built for ourselves. And so he comes to Jesus, and he comes to him with what he knows. And this is always how we come to Jesus, right? We know this about you, Jesus. He's got these ideas about God. And so he talks to Jesus about these ideas, and Jesus responds to him and, and essentially affirms what he's saying. The ideas are not wrong. But then Jesus blows up his worldview and says, there is something radical I'm calling you into. The confrontation is now happening even more so in Nicodemus' heart. Jesus says to him, you must be born anew, which is a way of saying that God's reign cannot come until you release your own. And Nicodemus is incredulous at this. How can, how can this even be? You can't be born anew. How can a human being be born anew? Right? He's already got his pre-developed positions in mind, his insights in hand. He's got exit strategies on the ready, and we find him wandering away into the night, and his story is left unresolved. In the middle of this story comes one of the most uh, well-known passages in Scripture. And it's just interesting to hear it in its full context. Uh, Unfortunately, I think what we tend to do when we hold this up as a sign, you know, behind the goalposts at a football game, uh, is we dilute its meaning down. Because yes, God loved the world that he gave his son, that is true, but God not only gave his son's death for us, but his life as model for us. And it's true that whoever believes in him, that's true, but the belief here, the believing in him is not merely to assent to an idea, but to place deep trust in a person. And it's true that they should not perish but have eternal life, but that life starts right now in how we show up to the world. And it begins with repentance of our old way and the reception of something totally new. I was trying on Friday just to sketch this out in a way that made sense in my, my own life. And so I'm going to give us an image of a tree. If you go to the next one for me, Andy, thank you. Um, and we'll spend some time with this uh, today, but mostly next week. Um, but, but what we have here is a tree that I'm calling the selfdom, right? This is me in my own rule and my own way. And the tree is me, and it's planted in the soil of control and fear. And then we see these branches. These are the major domains of life. And this is not comprehensive. You could add to this. But we see these major categories of how we show up to the world, our relationships, politics, sexuality, work, money, identity, and then we trace down to these roots, and under those branches, we find that these things stem from these big questions about power and significance and security and safety and comfort and the longings and belongings of my heart. And so all of this is growing 
in the world, but we find that the roots are, are all with the word self in front of them. They all still have words like self-defense and self-protection and self-promotion and self-reliance and self-preservation. And that's what's going on in this soil of control and fear. And what happens often is we meet Jesus in the night, we tell him all the things we know about him, and then we hope that his fruit of life just begins to pop up on these branches. But the branches still hold the same posture and the same place as they have always held. And so we've got to find something more significant changing if we're going to be taken out of the selfdom and into the kingdom of God. And so what is called for here is a transplantation, right? Jesus calls his followers, if you go to the next one for me, Andy, to a whole different sort of soil. You have to be uprooted. You have to be relocated. You have to be planted anew into the ground into a whole new soil. And this is not the work of self-improvement. This is the work of death and resurrection. Yeah. It's work that we submit to, not work we manufacture. Yeah. But what we're gonna find is that now on the other side of this, this is the call, you must be born again. Now I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Now the tree is called kingdom. There's this whole new domain, this radically other ecosystem, this transplantation has happened. And notice that the branches and the roots are still the exact same, right? I still have relationships. I still bring work and money and politics, sexuality, identity, and the roots are still the same. I still have questions about belonging and ways of holding power and significance and security and safety. These things are actually neutral. They can be forces of great good or forces of great evil and pain in our lives. The difference is, where do they draw their life from? And how are we holding them? What is, what is animating them? And so when we are uprooted from the kingdom of self and replanted in the kingdom of God, then we find that now the soil of trust and love starts doing new things and new fruit begins to appear in our lives. And so these realities of being human, like politics and relationships, and we'll talk more about these next week, these things, we all know unhealthy ways these things show up, and we all know healthy ways these things show up. And the question is, how are, we, how are we holding them, and what is feeding them? What soil are they being nurtured in? Often, if we're honest, it's a mixture of both. Even after we say yes to the way of Jesus, we, we might one day feel like, oh, I'm operating in this soil of trust and love, and then the next minute, it's like, whoa, where did all that fear and control come from, Right? And so we're holding the tension of these spaces, but that's why we keep on praying, birth me anew. We keep on praying, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, more of that soil, less of the other soil, right? And I wonder if this is why Jesus uses birth imagery. It's as if he's saying, and these are David's words from our gathering planning this week, you have to know nothing again, right? You have to be a child again. You have to be small and dependent to receive this kingdom. You have to be transplanted, but to be transplanted means you first have to be supplanted. You have to be uprooted. You have to be displaced and cut out from the life that you know, and this does not feel good. It's risky business to take a living organism and cut it out of its root system and replant it somewhere else and hope that it takes root again. It may involve dying, and it certainly will involve the loss of control. And so as it turns out, Jesus the way is not messing around. 
And Jesus, the rabbi, who we often come to seeking only affirmation, calls us to a new allegiance. And he is deeply safe, but we should not confuse that to be a steady supply of warm and fuzzy feelings. We cannot encounter Christ in the night and not be strangely compelled, but also deeply challenged. But we want control. Lent, we come with this admission, I want comfort and I want control. But it is rare, though, in Scripture, and check me on this if you don't believe me, it is rare that we find someone coming to Jesus and having a conversation with him and not leaving confounded. Like, more often than not, we see people stumbling away confused and uncertain. And what are we going to do with that in Lent, right? How, how, how do I deal with the fact that Jesus confounds me, that I'm as incredulous as Nicodemus sometimes, that everything he says sometimes so does not compute with the soil of everything I know about life that it feels like a totally different, like what, it doesn't even make sense sometimes. We have to be planted in a whole different world. And so when we find Jesus incomprehensible, how do we not blow off his life and his teachings? How do we refuse to rationalize them, refuse to water them down, even when they're at odds with the soil our whole life has sprung from, everything we know that is practical about living? And we turn on the TV and we flip the channel or we pull up the app that will bolster what we already know, just like Nicodemus, this is what I already know, and I want that reinforced, and I retreat to social media or my social circle, and I find myself submerged in this fine-tuned, perfectly catered algorithm. It's an echo chamber with just enough contrarian view to leave me outraged all the time. And I hang out with friends who look like me and age like me and spend like me and think like me, and I pick a church that meets me where I am but also leaves me feeling good most of the time, and then I finally hear a teaching I disagree with, and I'm outraged about it, and yet the whole time I'm like, I want to grow, God, right? what a strange sermon to get a week after soul care sunday (laughs) but this is what lent is Uh, because as loved as you and i are we are not the center of the universe there is a throne at the center and i am not on it jesus is king And the selfdom, therefore, must be crucified. King Jesus loves us too much to simply high-five everything we thought we already knew about the world. He's not going to play that game. He's going to rip open our categories and expand our maps and narrow the way all at the same time. He's going to shatter our binaries and our dichotomies and our assumptions and our certainties. And the more we follow him, the less we find we know. And the reason is because he keeps confounding things. He keeps on confounding our camps and blowing up our categories of Republican and Democrat and left and right and rich and poor and red and blue and sacred and secular. How does he do that? It's because he pre-exists all those categories and therefore is not contained within them. He's not trapped inside the way I think life has to be. His desire is for something far deeper, far more expansive, to be born anew in our lives. And so Jesus goes for the jugular. And then he tends to it with great care. (laughs) This is life in the kingdom of God. And it's more dangerous than we think. It is, as Eugene Peterson says, the announcement of a powerful army poised on your border, ready to invade. 
And yet we say things like Christ and love and peace and belief and sin, words, he says, that in other times excited martyrdoms, and we hear them with nothing more than the weather report or the grocery list of a day. Why, as Annie Dillard says, do the ushers of our churches not issue life preservers and signal flares when we walk in here? Why do they not lash us to our pews? It is madness, she says, to wear ladies' hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets because the kingdom of God is dangerous business. And it's a collision course we go to now, between now and Palm Sunday. And none of us get out alive if we follow the way of Jesus. We have to be born anew. And sometimes we are. Sometimes we're brought back to life. And so our story ends today after a death. And we find Nicodemus one more time show up. Nicodemus, who at first had come to Jesus by night, also came. This is after the cross. And he comes with a mixture of myrrh. And he's got spices in hand. And he's come to bury a king that he is still following all these years later. He stayed on the journey. And he's, he's there to care for his king who has just died. And this time we hear nothing about what Nicodemus knows. We just find him entering into a mystery of death and resurrection. We find him entering into a great mystery that only comes after death. It's that long obedience. It's the continuing to say yes so that what Nicodemus started with this powerful religious leader in charge and probably in a very comfortable position now has a lot less that he knows. A lot more has been risked, but he's finding life on the other side of it. That's the invitation this Lent. So Jesus, would you help us? To be a little bit open. We're humans, and we often can't really open up 100%. We're just too scared. We're too fragile, too weak to totally trust you. But we want to try. So would it be that like 3% of us could be open to you today? Maybe five Would there be a little door creaked open? A little hole in the wall of the boundaries of the selfdom that you could sneak in and more and more begin to transplant us out of that soil of control and fear and into the soil of love and trust. Your kingdom come, we pray. Amen.